Bottom. All right, so uh, we're going to take a look at some other topics uh, in the book of Esther that is not um, on Sunday morning. Last week, we looked at some of the additions that uh, we found in the book of Esther. Uh, this screen, if you can see it okay, is one of those elaborate scrolls of Esther that have been printed out as it's used in the Festival of uh, Purim, uh, the yearly Jewish festival. And uh, so tonight, what I want us to do is talk a little bit about these two competing genocidal uh, dec uh, decrees uh, and kind of ask the question in the back of our mind, uh, is one of them just or are both of them just or is both of them unjust, that type of thing. So um this is a topic that gets a little bit dicey when we consider the implications. So you should have a handout that has uh, two pages of printed material. And on the last page, there are uh, two slides that talks a little bit about just war theory. And uh, so uh, let's begin, first of all, uh, with just kind of reminding ourselves of what we've already covered on Sunday morning. So we looked at chapter three of Esther, and we were introduced to Haman, who is kind of the villain of the story, and he is considered to be an agite, uh, which uh, is a part of an ongoing enemy of uh, the Jewish people. And he takes this personal... Um, affront by Mordecai, who will not give to him the uh, homage that he feels he deserves, uh, and he determines that he wants to exterminate not only Mordecai, but all the Jews as well. So he goes to King Ahasuerus in chapter three, and we are told that uh, he convinces the king to determine a date upon which um, uh, the Jews will be exterminated. This date is determined by a casting of the lots. And in Hebrew, it's the word pure. And uh, that's where we get the name for the festival of Purim. And uh, the date for this genocide corresponds to approximately the same time of year that we're in right now. This particular decree was probably in the fifth year of Esther's reign as queen. And um, it was to be uh, on in the month of Adar, which corresponds to our month of March. So that kind of summarizes the first thing. In between all that, we uh, looked on Sunday morning and saw that Mordecai uncovered a, um, a murderous plot against the king, and two individuals were executed because of it, and uh, he was never honored. Uh, Esther goes into the presence of the king at a banquet, and uh, she... Uh, begins to unfold before King Ahasuerus that she's a Jew and that there's this decree that has been written against the Jews. And um, Haman uh, is the individual who thinks he's in good standing with the king. And as a result of this, he uh, misplays um, his position with the king. And what we find in chapter five um, is that um, Esther makes a request of the king and uh, she kind of puts off telling him what the problem is until a second day when there is a second banquet and she invites Haman there. And then um, what we find is that uh, the king had a sleepless night and uh, in order to kind of get himself back in a sleepy mood, he orders the reading of the chronicles of his reign and uh, he finds this passage where Mordecai saved his life. And so he asks this question in chapter six, what should be done uh, for an individual that uh, the king honors? And so Haman speaks up and talks about leading him around the city. And uh, he's on a royal horse with a royal crest and all this type of thing. And when uh, King Ahasuerus says, well, let this be done for Mordecai the Jew, uh, Haman is uh, crestfallen, and he goes home, 
and um, his wife Zeresh tells him that um, this is only going to come to ruin uh, because this man is a Jew. And in chapter seven, what we find is that when in the second banquet, Esther uh, talks about this decree to kill uh, her people, uh, she names Haman as both an adversary and an enemy, and um, and Haman ends up being killed on the um, gallows that he had built to kill Mordecai. That then brings us to chapter 8, and in, in chapter 8 and 9, in a reversal of fortunes, we find that Mordecai uh, presents to King Ahasuerus uh, a second decree to protect the Jews um, so that they could defend themselves since the first decree was irreversible. And what we are told is that he, uh, he words this decree in an interesting way. In chapter 8, it says in verse 11, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. Now, you might think that would be enough right there that he could put a period after that. But it then goes on and says to also kill and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to put uh, plunder to the uh, property of their enemies. And so the same day uh, on in the month of Adar, uh, there is this second decree that allows the Jews to defend themselves. But in chapter nine, what we find taking place is that there is um, the execution of a number of people um, by the Jewish people. And it tells us that not only uh, are Haman's sons killed in chapter nine, verse seven, and there's a bunch of names that I don't wanna pronounce in verse seven of chapter nine, because they're quite complicated. Uh, but then what we find is that um, they uh, were to use this decree not only to protect themselves, but um, to also avenge themselves. And in chapter nine, what we're told, and this is what we're going to be covering this Sunday uh, in our sermon in chapter nine, verses one through 19, we're told that Initially, in the city of Susa, 500 people were killed, but in the surrounding provinces, the Jews killed 75,000 people uh, in the process. So um, this particular um, competing decree, if you will, um, allows the Jewish people to annihilate all men, women, and children. And that's where this um, kind of moral uh, complexity comes into place. And the moral dilemma is which decree is just. I would think that we would say the first decree that Haman proposed was unjust because uh, he takes his personal affront and he wants to obliterate all the uh, Jewish people. This second decree, though, um, is often thought within Christian circles that um, they were only defending themselves. But I think if we look at the text closely, um, we'll find that it seems to go beyond the uh, boundaries of self-defense. Um, and that brings up a question that often comes up. Is this a just decree? Is this a just action on, on the part of the Jewish people in chapter 9? And I'm going to wrestle with that on Sunday morning. But a secondary question that comes up is, uh, what are the conditions uh, of war? So you have these two competing genocidal decrees. Is one of them just, one of them unjust? Are they both unjust? Uh, if so, why is that the case? Is it because it moves beyond self-defense? That type of thing. So you got to wrestle with these type of questions in the book of Esther. And um, so let me just kind of throw it out to you right now. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this at this point before we move ahead? Because I'm going to give you a little bit of background as to probably why these decrees are written the way they are written. But 
Um, do you have any initial thoughts on this? Yeah, I do. <laughs> it's uh, the decree that Mordecai wrote sounds a lot like what God was saying to the Israelites when they were conquering the land. Yeah, yeah. Get rid of everybody. Yeah, that's a good observation. You're right. We have to remember this is Old Testament. I don't mm -hmm. know, you know, the, how many years past that it is. Uh -huh. That's a good yeah. observation. Very good observation. That's interesting. That's interesting is he, he, in both cases, a couple of times they basically referenced saying, do not, we, even though we killed all these people, we did not take any of the spoils. Yeah. You know, so there's something peculiar about that, the way they, the way they emphasize that. And also then, of course, they impaled all of his kids, you know, yeah. uh, you know, which was sort of some sign of, of not, uh, I'm not quite sure what, the, what they were trying to symbolize, but mm -hmm. uh, that was pretty, pretty, um, pretty gruesome for sure. Gruesome. Yeah, I think obviously trying to send some kind of a signal. The other thing is that that, that this you know, seventy five thousand people is a lot of people. I mean, that's the yeah. thing that I, you know, even though even though they were large civilizations, um, in one swoop, the literally, you know, it sounds like it's a fairly short period of time to just kill that many people. Just seems like it's kind of a little. I mean, the reality is, uh, I, this book, I think, as you know, I spent quite a bit of time this morning trying to look at the historical sides of this. It's mm -hmm. kind of a story. I mean, it's, I mean, it, there's a lot of question in terms of is this really fact and i think most people lean to the to the direction you know scholars that say it's not this is a story that was created to to to, to justify the the holiday you know or whatever you want to call it prim yeah and and that's why some of this just seems a little bit it's over know, the top yeah or the, over the over the top in terms of trying to send that so some of these signals you know and it, it, it because of that of being over the top it does sound a little it makes it sound a little more fictional, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, right. Now, a, that's a great observation that Bud has just made. And that is, are we dealing with real history here? Or are we dealing with some political propaganda that's going on as well that serves other purposes? When you think about one day, 500 people being killed in the city of Susa and 75,000 people being killed throughout the rest of the provinces, that's astronomical in a, in a day's time, you know? So um, there are some things here that I think help us to kind of figure out what is going on. It seems to me, first observation, is that the decree of Mordecai is to kind of parallel and reverse the decree of Haman so that the verbiage uh, of the decree of Mordecai is to kind of uh, be in symbolic manner be exactly like the decree of Haman. So to kind of use an Old Testament parallel, we might say these decrees kind of uh, work on the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth type of thing, where Mordecai's uh, uh, decree is intentionally written in such a way to kind of counteract Haman's decree. And it has that kind of lingo in it. Other thoughts on any of this before we go to the next slide? Yeah, so Mark just said, yeah, yeah, right. How do you kill 75,000 people in one day? Is that even possible considering the weaponry that would be used. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, let's move on and let's see. I think what's happening here is it is trying to continue this ongoing feud between two groups of people. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I think that the other thing is that this is something that has deep historical roots to it. So 
in Panther 3, as I mentioned before, uh, Haman is referred to as an agite. Um, and this is probably a reference to the King Agag. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, I think we get a little bit of an understanding of what is happening, not only uh, historically, but also why um, we find that uh, the Jews did not take any of the spoils of war. So in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, um, Saul is king. And what we find is that there is a, a command um, that is given by God in this chapter. So let's begin in verse one. So Samuel, the prophet, is speaking to Saul, the king, and he says, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. So now listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Okay, so this story is going all the way back to the Exodus. And it's talking about the, uh, the Amalekites as the nation of Israel is moving up toward the promised land, attack the Jewish people as they're en route. Then it says here, that the Lord says, I'm going to punish this group of people for what they did back then. Verse three, now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Kill everything, okay? But when you read chapter that's not what Saul does. Jump down to verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. And he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But, it's a big but, verse 9. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So they made a decision to keep the best of the spoils of, of the war. Now, what we find is that um, Saul has this excuse. If you jump down to verse 17, so Samuel uh, confronts um, Saul and says, I hear the, the sound of animals. Uh, whose animals are they? And then what we find, verse 17, Samuel says, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people the Amalekites make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Then Saul gives this excuse, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission. Uh, the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God. Here we go. In order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God at Gilgal. So they kept the best. They says we were doing that to, to give sacrifice to God. So two things to observe. This is an ongoing hostility that goes all the way back to the Exodus. Then what we find is Saul is supposed to wipe out the Amalekites as a revenge for that attack, but he doesn't do so. Rather, he uh, saves some of the spoils of war. Um, and then later in the book of Deuteronomy, and we don't need to turn there, chapter 25, verse 15, uh, Israel was not to forget, to, but uh, was to blot out the name of Amalekite from under heaven. So what we find is 
this is an ongoing war between two groups of people. And what we find is if we trace down Mordecai's lineage, he is the son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish. And that, is, that uh, tells us that that he has an association with the tribe of Benjamin, which also means he has a kinship to King Saul. So you have Agag and the Amalekites, you have Saul and the Israelites. There's, there's this deep root that's going on right now. But what we find taking place next is that um, it sets the stage for this ongoing conflict of which the story of Esther is the most current expression of that. So when Haman writes a decree to wipe out the Jews, what is he trying to do? He's trying to finish off what his ancestors did not do centuries before. When Mordecai writes this decree, he's trying to finish off what Saul failed to do hundreds of years before. Does that make sense to everyone? So these decrees seem to be linked all the way back to the roots of the conflict between these two groups of people. So that brings us to this slide here. Now, we might say this is an understandable personal conflict based upon the history that these two men know that go all the way back to the past. So first point here, Haman's identity as an Amalekite would explain uh, Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him. I'm not bowing down to a descendant of an Amalekite. Are you kidding me? There's no way a self-respecting Benjaminite uh, would bow down to a descendant of an Amalekite. Now, Haman's reaction is understandable because um, old antagonisms die hard, right? So here is this uh, man, Mordecai, that is continuing the ongoing conflict. Let's do away with this conflict once and for all. Now, Haman uses the opportunity, or at least he was going to before he was executed, to confiscate the property of all the Jewish people that he was going to kill because he made a promise to King Mordecai, uh, not Mordecai, to King Ahasuerus that he would uh, deposit a certain amount of money into the, his treasury chest. So um, Haman is going to take all the spoils of war from this uh, decree. So um, just on a side note here, uh, we find even in the book of Daniel, which kind of predates Esther, uh, because it talks about the Babylonian Empire, the Persians follow the Babylonians, uh, but Persian law uh, could not be altered. So once it was written, it was written in stone, and the only thing that could really happen is, depending upon how the, the decree was worded, a second decree might be able to invalidate it. And I think this is what King Ahasuerus was instructing Esther and Mordecai to do in chapter eight. Um, so let's go back to the book of Esther. In chapter eight, verses seven and eight, notice what it says, King Xerxes, again, Ahasuerus and Xerxes are the same person, replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So what happens here is he gives them permission to write a decree that will invalidate the first decree, um, but Mordecai writes a decree of great revenge. And I think uh, kind of from Mordecai's point of, of view, um, this is an opportunity not just for self-defense. This is an opportunity to finish off what should have been done centuries prior. So the point of the new decree um, is to 
end this hostility that's been going on for uh, years and to finish off the Amalekites. Now, um, that does not, in my estimation anyways, give a justification for the decree. I'm just trying to explain probably what was going on in the thinking of Mordecai and Esther. So let me stop there and see if you have some thoughts, comments, questions. Anything? So basically, the second decree is a reversal of fortunes, okay? So um, as the book of Esther reaches its climax in chapters eight and nine, uh, the Jewish people will turn a political defeat into a political triumph. And they will use this new decree in light of the fact that they have months to prepare because that that date was determined um, to be months later. So they have a chance to build up their own military forces between uh, the time the decree is written and the date that is determined uh, by lot. Um, and so when the day comes for this supposed massacre of the Jews, uh, which is about eight months later, the Jews have had time to build up their defense and, um, and they, they can kind of put a, a strong uh, resistance against uh, the anti-Semitic powers uh, that they have dealt with for centuries, you know, all the way back to the time of Egypt. So it seems to me that Mordecai and Esther are taking advantage of the opportunity to kind of protect the interest of the Jews for years to come. So it's it's kind of a political uh, thing that they are doing here because once King Xerxes or Hasuerus gives them the permission to write a second decree, the king has shown his hand now. He has shown that he's on the side of the Jews. And so they're going to take advantage of that and protect themselves for the upcoming years. So by the opening of the uh, actual date uh, of the war that's going to take place, these competing decrees, you find that the Jewish people um, and their power and the military that they build up was quite overwhelming. And fact, I would say that chances are, without Haman being in the picture anymore, that any, any attack or persecution against the Jews probably would have been isolated. It probably wouldn't have been an empire-wide thing, because now the king is on the side of the Jews. There's this second decree. They've had the time to build up their strength that type of thing. So now the decree of Haman is only a possibility. And it might just be that individuals that were strong Amalekites that would take, still take this decree and try to put to death some of the Jews. It's unlikely though, that Persians uh, probably would have done so. If that second decree wasn't written, um, it could have been possible that the Persians would have followed the Amalekite lead because it was a decree that was still in effect by the king. So that's a long-winded explanation, but I think it gives us a few possibilities here. Um, it, and you'll notice the second point on this slide here, and that is there was no longer a question of real anti-Semitic assault. And if there were to be some type of resurgence of Haman's decree, it's more than likely Mordecai could have opted to arrest and execute a few hundred of those militia um, and you know, either killed them or have them arrested, have them tried under the king's court because the king is now on the side of the Jews. Does that make sense? So any thoughts on that? So you can see kind of how dark 
this becomes in chapter nine of Esther. 75,000 people killed, 500 in the city of Susa also. And you kind of go, was that necessary? And you can kind of see that dark side. And in fact, there are some Jewish people, um, conservative Orthodox Jews uh, that without the additions that we talked about of Esther last week, without the additions of Esther, there had been many Jews that felt that the book of Esther should not have been a part of the canonical collection. Does that make sense? Because of this dark chapter um, in chapter eight and nine of Esther. Some thoughts there? Any sense of what percentage of the total population the Jews were at this point? Well, that's a great question because a lot of them did go back under Cyrus' decree back to Jerusalem to rebuild the uh, city and the temple. Um, uh, I don't know, but I can't answer percentage-wise what the population level would have been. Um, I would venture to say one additional thought, though, is even if the Jews are not a high-volume population in the Persian Empire, at this time, it seems to, to me anyways, because of the writing of the second decree that the Jews probably had the king's army at their disposal too. They would have followed that, uh, the carrying out of that decree and probably would have come alongside to help them. Um, the other odd thing that I think in this chapter where it says, and as a result of this, many people became Jewish. That that just seems to be weird. I mean, I I, I always I think of I think of Judaism and as um, as ethnic, you know, in a sense, you know, yeah. and not 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 just religious. Mm -hmm. And um, it just seems odd to me that potentially Persians would somehow become Jewish. I don't quite understand what that means. Well, my own thinking on that is these people converted so that they wouldn't die. That yeah. they they were fear in in fear of their lives. So I think I mentioned in Sunday's message that this actually turns into a crusade uh, when during the uh, dark ages, um, you know, when crusades were going on, you had to confess Christ or die type thing. Um, it seems to me to be a similar thing that's going on here. That's my only explanation of why some of these individuals would have uh, joined the Jewish faith by becoming proselytes of Judaism. Um, but, you know, I think, I do think in other sections of the Old Testament, um, there were Gentiles that became Jews simply because they felt the Jews worshiped the one true God. But I don't think that's the case here. I think the case here is it has to do something with the fear of these that felt that they would become refugees and would be hunted down. That's just my thoughts on it anyways. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I don't know if you could hear Esty or not. She said, bow before the Jews, just like Haman wanted Mordecai to bow before him. That, that is a, a good parallel observation. It seems as though the way the book of Esther is written, that there's so many parallels and these decrees are kind of in, in parallel as well with uh, the first decree. So uh, if, if it all started with Haman desiring Mordecai and i.e. the rest of the Jews to bow before him as a Malachite, uh, then this is a counteraction to that. I think that's a great observation. So if you were to talk to Orthodox Jews or conservative Jews, would they, what would they generally agree on in terms of this book being in some sense a story, you know, or versus historical fact? From what I've read so far in some of the Jewish commentators online in preparation for Sunday morning and stuff like that, it seems as though that most 
rabbis feel that this is a mixture of uh, myth and fact and hyperbole uh, story mixed in with some uh, personalities that all have kind of symbolic elements to it. Um, I think I think it's probably only evangelical Christianity that wants to take this as pure history. Um, in Judaism, there is the thought that this book is primarily trying to establish the importance of the festival of Purim, uh, right. which is to celebrate the freedom of the Jews from foreign oppression. And Haman is the epitome of what an adversary, an enemy looks like. Um, and so they use it as an opportunity to celebrate um, their freedom, celebrate the fact that they overcame so many, um, so many times where they were oppressed and uh, that type of thing. So I don't know, and I can't give you a percentage uh, of Jewish rabbis that would would take this as pure history, but I think that that they would be in the minority. But most of them thinks that this is a a mixture of story, uh, tradition, um, principles of morality, um, different things like that. So that's a great, great question. Was there a Queen Esther in history? Um, I don't know that there's any evidence that there was not. Um, one of the one of the topics that I want to touch on, and maybe we'll do this for next Wednesday night, is the question that comes up by uh, Jewish rabbis that often question: Was Esther a moral woman? So again, in Christianity, we tend to elevate Esther as a heroine. Within Judaism, there's great question about her mixed motives and why didn't she do certain things at a certain time that would have been a, a more advantageous um, benefit uh, for the Jewish people. We'll, we'll talk, uh, talk about that. We'll try to talk about that next week. But um, my opinion is, yeah, there was an Esther and yes, there was a Mordecai and yes, there was a Haman and yes, there was uh, a King Xerxes. However, the way that they are portrayed in the book of Esther probably has some uh, elements to it of embellishment. And, um, and it seems to me that the additions to the book of Esther that we talked about last week was to try to, um, I guess, justify Mordecai and Esther's actions a little bit because of the couple of prayers of Mordecai and Esther that are added there, as well as the full text of the decrees. So we only have kind of a summary of the decrees in the book of Esther. But if you look at those additions, those decrees are written out longer. Uh, those are obvious editorial additions. But it seems to me that they are trying to justify what goes on in the canonical book of Esther and give to it, um, you know, trying to justify it and establish it and give it credibility. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question directly, Shelley. Yeah, I personally think that there probably were these personalities. I'm not sure that they're exactly the same as they're portrayed in the book of Esther, though. I know they can trace some biblical characters back to real life, and I didn't know yeah. if they could yeah. trace I don't know, without going, looking for that specifically, I don't know, but. Yeah, some of the stuff that was in the different sources, you know, some, I think there's, the uh, Persian Empire had some reasonable level of historical um, documentation, you know, there's, I think, mm -hmm. in terms of years and people. One source indicates that they can't really, they can track every wife of, of Xerxes and Artaxerxes and you know, that, crew, that group, hmm. and Cyrus and all them, and uh, that they really, they, can, they can't find her. In other words, they, they, they know who was the queen 
Yeah. Different for different people at different times. Yeah. And um, so they really, from that, at least that's that write up, they didn't seem to be able to kind of a process of elimination. They, they were not able to find an Esther, an Esther in there. And that's certainly plausible that maybe Esther is a mythical character that is, you know, trying to establish um, a line of, of, I don't know what I want to say, kind of some line of connection to the deliverance from Haman um, and that type of thing. Of course, there would be, there would be the question of whether Haman was a historical individual too. I guess we could ask that question too, but um, yeah, you're right. Uh, as far as, you know, extra biblical uh, sources that establish Esther, really what we have is primarily what's in front of us, I think. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what, what, I don't know if you heard, Esty, but she was talking about how in uh, chapter nine, when the sons of Haman are killed, um, they're all named. And so there seems to be legitimacy to this lineage um, by some of the, by the naming of these individuals. Um, you know, Esther is portrayed as an orphan girl um, who is raised by Mordecai. So the lineage element there is not stated in the book. But let's see if we can get a couple more things done. Right? I know we're not going to get this whole page three done. So let's, um, let's look at the next one here a moment. And I think this is a real important question. When the Bible sanctions violence, must we do so as well? There is a lot of violence in the Old Testament. And um, what we find is many times people um, cannot reconcile a God of love with the commands to exterminate the Canaanites, the Amalekites, uh, different things like that, or even when God um, exterminates some of his, uh, the Jewish people because they touch the ark or whatever it may be. So I think it's a legitimate question to ask when the Bible sanctions violence, do we have to sanction it as well? If you take the Bible as a flat text, uh, where every part of it is is equally important as other parts of it, uh, then you have a, the difficulty with trying to figure out how all of this violence plays in to the overall plan of God. And, um, and so that's why a lot of people don't like to venture into the Old Testament very much because they run into these type of things where when you get to the New Testament, especially the Gospels, uh, it's much easier to read about uh, the life and ministry and miracles of Jesus. So I thought this is an important question. And the way you can break this question down has to do with first observation. Not all violence is regarded the same way in the Old Testament. So on your notes there, look, uh, sometimes the Bible makes it unmistakably clear that certain actions uh, are prohibited. They're, they're um, wrong, they're sinful. Um, I just pulled out a couple of examples here. When Cain kills his brother Abel, obviously um, that is condemned within the Ten Commandments, thou shall not murder, it's condemned. Uh, when David brings Bathsheba's husband Uriah, uh, uh, back uh, from battle so that he can cover up his own um, indiscretions with Bathsheba that leads to a pregnancy. 
He then sends Uriah to the front of the line. And we are told in 2 Samuel that Uriah dies in battle. And, um, and what we find is Nathan, the prophet, will confront David with this and said, David, you know, you have really sinned uh, by doing this against this lady's husband. Um, then there's other violence that seems to be considered virtuous in the sense that it is providing something better. Can I use that in quotations? Better than the killing itself. So I give you an example of the flood. In Genesis 6, um, Noah and his family are spared, but other people are exterminated because violence has, has basically covered the whole earth, which I find is a little bit interesting to think that God is going to remove violence from the face of the earth by violence. Um, but nonetheless, the virtuous deed of it is start over um, and, you know, try to live, develop a different kind of society. The death of the firstborn in the Exodus uh, provides the, the final uh, reason that Pharaoh will let the Jewish people go. However, then you get to Joshua, which was mentioned by Shelley earlier this evening. And in the conquest of Canaan, is it really necessary to kill all the Canaanites in order to occupy the land? So what happens in the Old Testament is you have violence that is condemned. You have violence that's condoned. But here in Esther, you have violence that is celebrated. So, it, uh, so there's three kind of levels in, in the Old Testament. You have that which is condemned, that which is condoned, and that which is celebrated. So here's a follow-up question. Do we have the moral obligation to critique the assumptions um, in the Old Testament that violence is somehow virtuous? And my answer to that is yes. I think we have a moral obligation to critique the assumptions that were made by the people that did a lot of these atrocities. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, understand how civilization progresses forward to the time of Christ. And in Christ, we see, to use uh, Greg Boyd's uh, title in his book, we see the crucifixion of the warrior God. And other, in other words, rather than kill, Christ is willing to be killed uh, as a display of love and forgiveness and salvation. Um, so just a couple thoughts and then we'll see if you have some questions and then we'll close it up with this slide tonight. Thinking, um, the Old Testament. We often are evaluating the incidents uh, using our perspective as not as, as people that are victims under the circumstances. So we're standing apart looking back in on these stories and we evaluate it and critique it based upon our own life experience and situation. If we were somehow to read these violent episodes in the Old Testament from the perspective of those that were victims under oppression and hatred and cruelty, would we be able to evaluate their response to this uh, by, by aggression, by violence in a different way? Um, so it's just a thought to go, if we were the Israelites in Egypt, um, would we have a different perspective on the death of the firstborn uh, of all of Egypt in order to procure freedom? So it's just a way for us to kind of think, we can't just read from the perspective of those that are in power. We also have to read it from the perspective of people that were under oppression. Secondly, critiquing the violence episodes in the Old Testament does not necessarily render that 
text useless. So a lot of times what people do is they go, there's too much violence in the Old Testament. I'm not going to read the Old Testament. Well, that's why Paul, I think, is, he says, hey, all scripture is inspired. That That's a whole nother topic in terms of letter for letter, word for word, or concept to concept. That's a whole different topic. However, but he does say the scripture is inspired and it is useful for a variety of things. So when he says that, he's expecting us, and not by us, I don't, I'm, he's expecting those that are his contemporaries uh, to wrestle with the text. And consequently, that's what we do too. We wrestle with certain parts of the text, such as Joshua 6 through 11. Um, and I think when you read those type of text, we can see how people that have long memories in the actual world where violence has been done to them as a people group um, justify their actions. And we see this in the uh, Palestinians and the Israeli conflicts all the time. I mean, there's rarely a day where there's not something from the Middle East that hits the news cycle. And that goes back deep into history. And it also is something that these individuals, both Jews, Palestinians, and other Arabs, feel they are justified with attacking their enemy and adversary, that type of thing. Um, but I do think to be a thinking individual, you have to critique uh, even what is considered to be the virtuous violence in the Old Testament. Um, how do you move beyond that? What can we learn from that? And how does it contribute to a healthier, more peaceful society? And, um, and that's, that's what we wrestle with, I think, when we come to the text of the Old Testament. So I'm going to stop there, and um, we will pick up um, on page three next week and you know, if we get to Esther and her moral status next week or not, that's that's beside the point. But we'll definitely um, pick up on page three and four for next week. But let's close off tonight with any observations that you might have, any questions that you might have um, on what we've done so far tonight. Any thoughts? I think you can bring the um justification so to speak for violence even down to a more personal level if you know somebody who's had a family member murdered or anything and you've seen the family members they just want the other guy something yes. they want justice for their yeah. Right. And relative. Right. That's right. And that is an ongoing storyline too, isn't it? And that is when we see, and let's just take the, the, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, that's really kind of built upon all these unjustifiable deaths of uh, uh, Black men and women. Um, and, and they're trying to reconcile this type of hatred and over, over um, violent expression toward them as a race, and then um, and then how do they get justice? And I think that's really what what often fuels, and it's not right, but often fuels some of the uh, rioting, even that we saw in downtown Cleveland, um, is the frustration uh, that builds up. Uh, because of a lack of justice, uh, that type of thing. So in many ways, what we observed over the last year or so, um, we find is really the ongoing lineage of that type of animosity in some of the situations we see even in, in the Old Testament as well. Uh, doesn't make it right on either side, but what I'm saying is, I agree, Shelley, that there's a desire for justice. And usually in our minds, we think that justice is punishment. 
that's usually what we equate it with. And so that could be physical and violent, or it could be, um, or it could be, you know, some type of jail or prison sentence, that type of thing. Okay, SD had a comment. So go ahead, SD. Nowadays, people that are oppressed, there's always violence attached somehow to it. Mm -hmm. Either they're defending themselves or they are in home, or uh, violence is done to them. Well, there you go. Other thoughts, comments, questions that you might have? Uh, but I applaud you for being willing to wrestle with it. And um, um, we'll finish off the handout next week, and then we'll see if we'll get the new material next week or not. But um, thanks for doing some footwork on this. And uh, Bud, I applaud you for having the time to do some research on it. So it's, it's really good. It's interesting, you know, the, the uh, trying to delve into it and see how the connection is with history. I mean, it's... Yeah. And of course, with the internet, you can go bananas on that. There's just so much, there's so much material out there, and you're trying to figure out what's what's good stuff, what's not so good, and and um, right. Yeah, it is a it's a deep deep hole that you can go into. You know, yeah. and you can just keep going farther and farther when you cross reference stuff with other <laughs> other uh, other you know other websites or whatever. You're right. This has really made me stop and think. At Ohio State, he had a professor who was I the Orthodox? Uh, no, it was conservative, I think. Very, very conservative yeah. anyway. But um, their last of three children was a little girl, and they named her Esther. Uh -huh. And I, I was assuming they named her after Esther in the Bible here because of right. how conservative they are. But now the other take, especially when you come in with, is she, was she moral, <laughs> makes yeah. me wonder. Well, well, my dear wife, of whom I'm going to be married to this Friday for 38 years. Um, we met you, we're 45. Uh, and I, I, know, I know, it's not, a, <laughs> it's not a comparison, but she was named after Esther. Oh, really? Time. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. So Estra, E-S-T-E-R-A, is the creation um, spelling of Estra. Yeah. So, yep. Now she's regretting that she's named. No, I'm just kidding. That. <laughs> I'm going to change my name. Yeah. Um. I don't think so. Let me kind of touch on that this Sunday, okay? Um, this he what Mark asks is, do you, do I do I think that the seventy five thousand is symbolic? Um, I think I think it's exaggeration is what I think it is, but I don't want to give away this Sunday's sermon, okay? But <laughs> but I don't think that's an actual no. I don't think that's an actual number. So, but anyway, yeah, yeah, right. All right, folks, we'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. They're, they're kibitzing about how they think all those 75,000 died as Mark drinks his Kool Aid. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, the other, the other thing is that, uh, you know, the the duration over which that occurred, I mean, it could have been actually longer. I mean, six million yeah, people, six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. So yeah. from the standpoint of numbers, 
you think that that that's an incredible number. I mean, obviously, is, yeah. horrible number. And and so you put that in the context. If in fact maybe it wasn't one day, maybe it was over a period of months, you know, or something, yeah. or weeks or months. You know, it becomes a little more feasible, perhaps. But yeah, um, right. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, those are all things to consider in the process. But I'll I'll give you my thoughts on chapter nine on Sunday. So oh, okay. okay, thank you. All right, have a good evening, everyone. We'll see you. you too. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.